from KQED. It was the end of 2017. Nearing the finish line in his second term as governor of California, Jerry Brown took the stage at an international climate conference in Germany to tout the work he'd done to limit carbon emissions in the state. Because it's real. We're doing real stuff in California. And I'm very glad that... Under the but a handful of protesters had followed him to Germany to interrupt his victory lap. And we even have characters like this here to make... The activists claimed that donations Brown received from the oil industry influenced his decision to allow fracking and approve oil drilling permits. In the ground. I agree with you. In the ground. Let's put you in Given Brown's strong legacy of environmentalism, the charges are certainly debatable. And given that he's built a career crusading against money and politics, a big industry donation may have been surprising to some. But now, at the end of his career, Brown is questioning himself. Oil, obviously, we say it's bad. But Californians, presumably including some of those critics, consume roughly 18 billion gallons of gasoline and diesel every year. They're not taking money from the oil companies. They're giving money to the oil companies, which I would assert is worse. In other words, when it comes to money and politics, nobody has clean hands. And so the lesson Brown has learned is one from his father, Governor Pat Brown. If it's legal, my father used to say, you can't sprinkle holy water on campaign money. From KQED Public Radio, this is the political mind of Jerry Brown. I have a political mind. How clearly do you see? How, how good is your eye? Get, get the ins out and to get the outs in. What wouldn't happen but for me? But for, but for me? I reserve the right to think for myself. Right to think for myself. You're listening to The Political Mind of Jerry Brown. I'm Scott Schaefer, politics and government editor for KQED. In this episode, we'll explore Brown's return to the political limelight and his evolving views on money in politics. Getting money out of politics propelled his third insurgent run for president in 1992. But in his last two terms as governor, Brown took a very different approach, bringing in big money contributions from across the ideological spectrum. As we've learned, Jerry Brown's relationship with the issue of money and politics goes way, way back. The average taxpayer is not going to get a square deal. The special interests are, are going to get favored treatment. That's just the In way In the it 70s, is. Brown became Secretary of State and then Governor by promising to reform California's system of campaign finance. But those issues were in the rearview mirror by the end of our last episode when Brown lost his political eye and his run for the U.S. Senate in 1982. For the next six years, Brown would be out of politics. And in 1986, he decided to leave the U.S. in search of enlightenment. I went to Japan as part of my general quest. Brown journeyed to Kamakura to study Zen meditation and find a nice quiet place to write a book. Simple, pure environment of sitting in a very nice, clean Japanese zendo. Rice paper windows looking out on a lush garden. With a nice tatami mat and the black cushion. That path to enlightenment, okay, that's one thing. Now what about Calcutta? What about the streets of Calcutta? Brown's next stop would take him to the slums of India. I want to see how enlightenment works in another venue. 
That venue is where the former Jesuit seminarian spent three weeks with Mother Teresa, a hero to many for her work on behalf of the poor and sick in early 1988. Mother Teresa was this saintly kind of figure, and I'm interested in that. What is holiness? What is sanctity? Does it exist? What should it look like? So I want to, certainly I spent a, a good part of my life chasing after that. So if there's somebody who says that person has it, I want to go talk to him. By the time Brown returned to California from his time with Mother Teresa, he'd spent half a decade doing political penance. His next step was a very far cry from vows of poverty or Zen meditation. He decided to run for chair of the California Democratic Party. He was living in L.A. at the time, but based on party rules, the next chair needed to live in Northern California. I said, well, I'm not ready to move back north, so I'll move back, sell my house, and become party chairman. In our dozens of hours talking to Brown, we noticed that he often makes these momentous decisions sound so matter-of-fact. Like, of course I'll uproot my life so I can stoop to an unpaid inside baseball position like party chair. But Brown wanted to get back in the game, and he easily won the spot. Here I am as a chairman of the, of the Democratic Party, attempting to build a powerful party institution. When Brown took over the party in 1989, California had a Republican governor in George Duke Majin and a Republican U.S. Senator, Pete Wilson. And as I tell anyone who will listen, building a powerful Democratic political party is an unnatural act. <laughs> Brown realized that to build a powerful political party, he would need money. But unlike when he was governor, there wasn't a whole lot to the party chair job besides raising cash. As governor and candidate for president, yes, I raise money. But I guess the substance of the offices I was running for uh, obscured in a way that being mere party chairman did not. In 1974, Brown wrote Proposition 9, which required clear disclosure of campaign contributions. Fifteen years later, he realized that sunlight didn't slow the rise of political donations. I think it got worse. I thought Prop 9 was going to take care of a lot of this money in politics, but it didn't, and it hasn't. And Brown's new job as party chairman was all about raising money. The overwhelming imperative to raise money as the party chairman and how crucial that was just for registration, just to get people to register, takes money. Because traditionally, the party pays people to knock on doors and register voters. Some shaggy kid saying, will you sign up for the Democratic Party? That's very ineffective. Brown had a more romantic idea for registration, one that harkened back to the farm worker movement. One of Cesar Chavez's organizers, Marshall Gans, convinced Brown to apply grassroots organizing tactics to register voters in every part of the state. We would build a leadership cadre uh, of the Democratic Party, and they would register people, but they would be a permanent staff, and uh, this would really be the basis of rejuvenating the party. What a beautiful idea if we could create a party that is both effective and open to broad-scale participation. Instead of a scruffy contractor, party staffers, the true believers, would spearhead registration drives. What if the members of a party would give us a few dollars a month and a few hours a month 
to make things happen. They didn't. And Brown soon realized it was a lot cheaper to organize farm workers than to register voters. Chavez paid $5 a week plus living in a dormitory. Now when we come to the party, people want a normal salary, they have to have a car. Uh, this gets very expensive. And that expense became unsustainable. And then you have to go to the same characters. You know, who provides the money? The companies, the trade groups, the, and the unions, and rich people who like to do things in politics. And the party is not a hot ticket. Brown's point is that inside party politics don't get the blood flowing. Donors would rather give to an exciting candidate. The extensive voter registration effort that Brown had planned for the 1990 election was turning into a pipe dream. By the time we got to May of the November election year, the budget was looking like it was going to be a million dollars a month. I could not raise that. And um, again, this was another one of these somewhat utopian ideas. And there was no fairy tale ending. Furious that the Democrats did not fare as well as expected in last week's elections, Assemblyman John Burton is asking fellow Democrats to fire former Governor Jerry Brown as state party chairman. Now, many feel Democrats underperformed in the 1990 election, headlined by Dianne Feinstein's loss to Republican Pete Wilson in the governor's race. And party leaders like John Burton found a convenient scapegoat, Jerry Brown. Well, I, I didn't run for party chairman saying that I was going to raise all this money and put together the greatest grassroots organization in history and have a great registration drive. That was Jerry Brown. In early 1991, Brown resigned as party chair. He had realized a hard truth about fundraising. People just don't get excited about funding the nuts and bolts of democracy. Big donors would rather give to individual lawmakers than pay for voter registration for a simple reason. Elected officials have the ability to make decisions on issues important to donors. They have life and death on a lot of things. Like the power to kill, pass, or change a bill. So that power then is translated into donations into the party and then feedback into the elections. That's, that's the way our wonderful system works. Uh, but it's very legislative, bill-oriented even though there's never a complete tie-in. In other words, there can't be a direct quid pro quo for donations. As party chair, Brown had seen inside the guts of the modern political system. That experience gave me a front row seat in the way elections are run. The, the enormous need to accumulate, uh, save, and then transfer money, that was really the launch pad for going against the whole system, which could only be done by changing the, the regime in Washington. So, in October of 1991, Brown set out to do just that. I'm here in Philadelphia to stand as a candidate for the President of the United States. He argued that until that unspoken quid pro quo between donations and political action was broken, nothing would change. The quid pro quo couldn't be any more straightforward. The legality of the barter can't mask its inherent corruptness. When you think of your three runs for president, 76, 80, and 92, what do you think distinguishes 1992? Uh, more of an attack on the status quo, clearly. And not raising the money, that's huge. Most candidates are spending a huge amount of their time talking to people with money. 
Instead of doing that, Brown adopted what was, at the time, a unique fundraising strategy. The first idea was to only accept donations of $100 or less. I'm the one that came up with the $100 limit idea. Talk about <laughs> it happened at my house. <laughs> Jody Evans was the campaign manager for Brown's 92 run for president. I remember when he turned to me, he said, 250, no, I said, it has to be 100. It has to be something everybody can do and everybody feels equal in. He's like, how are we gonna do that? And he, he was like, can we do it? And I'm like, yeah, it'll work. It'll only work if it's $100. If it's 250, it won't work. It seemed impractical, but it was more memorable. So you could remember $100. That's the reason why. That was the main thing. Well, you know, communication is the main thing, right? And you gotta keep it simple. The second breakthrough idea was a hotline where people could call to donate or volunteer. 1-800-426-1112. Call it. I mean, the 800 number really helped. It became such a cultural gimmick that it never existed before. It even made it to Saturday Night Live. And, and, and if you agree with me, call my 800 number, and it's 1-800-NOT-FLAKY. I mean, what Jerry was saying was so radical and so right on that he it became a cultural phenomenon. So that was really a way of telegraphing the idea that big money was uh, destroying the country and we the people would have to take back the country. And that was a good thing because it's been picked up by more than one candidate. Or were you taking it back from who? From the special interests, the Confederacy. The Confederacy. That's where Brown argued all this big money was going. And he packaged that idea, the forces he was running against, in his 1992 campaign slogan. It's a Confederacy of corruption, careerism, and campaign consulting. As he kicked off his long-shot campaign, Brown tied all of the country's problems, unemployment, health care, corruption, to the influence of money. And money has been the lubricant greasing the deal. Incredible sums, hundreds of millions of dollars. It's the money. Action. The money that's going into this thing is coming from a few people. And that few money, that from the very powerful people, are buying these campaigns. They said, you can't run for president and only take $100 and only take $50, have an 800 number? I mean, what are you doing? You hawking knives in the middle of the night? We're inviting the American people to take back their government that was ripped apart from them and to take it back so it serves them. Brown had entered the campaign as a massive underdog, and he finished last among the five major candidates in Iowa and New Hampshire. But the shoestring operation that Jody Evans was running allowed Brown to hang around in the race while more expensive campaigns dropped out. You know, we had no staff. Everything was volunteer. People got um, stipends. And it was really whoever showed up, you're doing it. It was pasted together. We have nothing. But people were so passionate. As the campaign continued, Brown did best in smaller states like Connecticut and Vermont, where grassroots activism could compete against better-funded opposition. Because that's what we were plugging into. We were plugging into the grassroots issues. And so they already had their networks, and so that's, that's where we would do well. By the spring, only two candidates were left standing, Brown and Bill Clinton who was closing in on the nomination. It was fitting, since many of Brown's big money attacks throughout the race were aimed at the Arkansas governor. 
You have your list, Bill. You're ahead of this DLC. I mean, Clinton was the leader of a new wave of Democrats who were trying to move the party to the center and weren't against big money fundraising. You were the link between the, the money and, and the politicians. That's what you've done for 10 years. You've been but not all of the swings Brown threw at Clinton landed. The most memorable moment of the primary came at a March debate in Chicago, when Brown launched another attack at Clinton's financial dealings. He is funneling money to his wife's law firm for state business. That's number one. Number two, his wife's law firm is representing clients before the state of Arkansas agencies, his appointees. But Clinton was ready with a counterpunch. You ought to be ashamed of yourself for jumping on my wife. You're not worth being on the same platform. I'll tell as my you something, wife. Mr. What do you remember, you know, about that moment? I thought Clinton was pretty clever because he shifted it from him to his wife, and attacking a woman is not a nice thing. So I thought he must have practiced that. He probably had more practice. He did have more practice than I did. And he was good. He was smart. Even though my central charge was correct. As that was happening, did you think? What? Well, I don't know. Like, no, oh, I was, oh, oh Look, I was surprised. He was good. You know, he was forceful. You know, I, I was as forceful as I could back to him. But it could have done better. Probably needed more practice. I would say practice makes perfect. Ultimately, Jerry Brown won nearly 600 delegates, a far cry from the more than 3,000 that Clinton racked up with wins in big states like New York and California. Even after losing to Clinton, Brown continued his crusade against big money throughout the 1990s. Live from Oakland, California, it's We the People with Jerry Brown. Brown moved to Oakland and began hosting a radio show called We the People. Welcome to another edition of We the People. This is a radio program dedicated to exposing the follies of the political class, that privileged and arrogant group that runs our country like a private club. And it was in Oakland, toward the end of the decade, that it seems Brown's thinking on the influence of big money began to shift. As Brown tells it, when he was running for mayor of Oakland, he again limited donations to $100. So you go around and you have fundraisers for $100. But the lower amount didn't stop the same groups from trying to peddle their influence. And it's the same people show up. The developers, you raise 20000 instead of 50000 in other words, you can take out the money, but you won't be able to take out the influence. It's the same people wanting the same things, and it feels identical. Brown carried this new skepticism of taking on money in politics for the rest of his career. After 50 years in the game, he's no longer the crusader calling for more disclosure of campaign contributions like he was in the 70s. Of course, the trouble of making it transparent, and everybody sees the money flowing, and it makes it feel worse. So the press loves transparency because you get clicks out of it and you get uh, sell papers. We've all heard politicians demand more transparency around money and politics, arguing that it will restore public confidence. But it has the exact opposite effect because it reveals all the foibles and flaws and warts of the system and it just undermines confidence all the more. So that's a paradox. When you assess Brown's recent record taking on money in politics, it's fair to wonder if all that crusading back in the day was just political opportunism. As governor the second time around, Brown vetoed efforts to strengthen the Political Reform Act he wrote back in the 1970s. And in his ballot measure campaigns and run for re-election, Brown took in big money from across the political spectrum. Oil giants, unions, insurance companies all pitched in. Today, Brown questions the trend of candidates swearing off money from particular sources. 
in some ways it's risen with identity politics. There's some, some money is not as clean as other money. I guess they say that. Really, it's so hard to raise money from almost all candidates. Any money you can get is great. The only reason you wouldn't take it is you think your opponent could use it against you and it would cost you more in votes than you would earn in votes with the money you got. So I, I don't think it's much principle involved. The lesson Brown has arrived on is one from his father, Governor Pat Brown. You can't sprinkle holy water on campaign money. It just is what it is. If all campaign donations are tainted in some way, there's no use turning away money that could help you win. As a former Jesuit seminarian, the holy water comparison seems to resonate with Brown. The holy water is used in the Catholic Church. You touch your fingers into the holy water and you cross yourself, and the holy water in some way is leading you closer to God, okay? So the campaign donations are not going to lead you closer to God. It may lead you closer to your election. It's a long way from the Jerry Brown who wrote the Political Reform Act and the Money is the Root of Evil campaign of 1992. But even during that crusade against money and politics, Brown says he could never quite figure out how a different system would work. I think I said at one point, they must go. It's time for them to go. Kind of referring to the whole Washington elected establishment. But then the question is, how would it work? I never really figured that out or came to a conclusion. What is the alternative? Coming up on The Political Mind of Jerry Brown, a return to local politics. Who ever heard of a politician seeking lower office? Well, who ever heard of a politician like Jerry Brown? We'll explore Brown's eight years as mayor of Oakland. I liked being in Oakland. You didn't have to jump on a damn plane. Uh, you'd, you'd see the neighborhoods. You'd, it, it was very grounded and uh, very real. City government gives Brown the opportunity to get hands-on with issues like housing, policing, and education. I don't think there are many elected officials who take such direct action. Direct action, Jerry Brown style. Well, he always liked to say that being governor was like flying at 35,000 feet, but as mayor, you're on the street level. But the direct approach didn't always win over Oakland residents. He thought this was just easy, like almost asking a rhetorical question, well, how hard can it be, you know, to educate kids? How hard can it be to organize a school? Getting closer to the issues didn't always erase Brown's blind spots. He did have a blind spot to the cultural issues in our police department and frankly, in all police departments. I'm Scott Schaefer. That's next on The Political Mind of Jerry Brown. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhum.org.